Welcome to the War Room. Ryan here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it. Jeremy, welcome to the War Room. Good to be with you, Ryan. Okay, so I love a provocative title. I just do. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm hooked for provocative titles. Your book has one, Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. Okay, so before I usually ask, what's the title? Well, I will. I'll go ahead and a question. Why this book now and why this title? Yeah, so I think there's been a lot of talk about elements that are parallel or look like a new civil war in American society. And I'm a historian who wanted to try to make sense of all this. And my argument is that we're not entering a new civil war. There's not going to be another Antietam or Gettysburg anytime soon. Uh, but that actually the old civil war has not really ended. Certain parts of it ended. But as any military historian knows, uh, the effects of the battles linger a long time over the battlefields. And we're still fighting some of the lingering battles from the old civil war. And that's why I wrote this book now, to help us understand our debates today, where they come from, to understand the violence in our society today and where it comes from, and to help us figure out what to do about it. What's the unfinished business that we still have to deal with? Okay, great. This is a slightly controversial topic, so that makes it even more fun um, to get into. Because it's one of those things that um, this is why I love this show. Obviously, I host it, but but I, I love the crew. I love why this show because I love having these conversations, and, and it feels like in society today you can't have them with everyone being offended and stuff. And it's we have to unpack these things. And so when you when you say what you've said, people are going to go, "Oh well, I'm not for favor reparations," or "Oh well, the past is the past," or "Oh well." And and part of the thing when you think about the Civil War, World War II, Vietnam, insert time here or a crime, a violent crime even, is if it doesn't, this is my perspective, I want your take on this, if it doesn't feel like adequate punishment has been meted out and uh, a sense of repentance or change from the the loser, assuming the loser was morally wrong, um, and then some sort of genuine effort to reconcile, no matter how large or small the scale is, the problems are going to linger and linger and linger. And so when I hear these debates today, I look back, not as a historian, just look back as an amateur and go, it doesn't feel as if we could talk about the arguments of the Civil War itself. It doesn't feel like when the war was done, that point actually happened. And so we're still battling in that sense, it seems. I completely agree. This is exactly where the book uh, begins. It begins with actually the martyrdom of John Wilkes Booth. Uh, I grew up in New York City. Uh, I was taught that John Wilkes Booth was a nobody, a fool, a criminal. Why would anyone martyr him? We martyred uh, Abraham Lincoln. But as I show in the book, there were thousands and thousands of people who for decades saw Booth as a hero. And, and that this is exactly your point, right? Uh, there were no large numbers of people in Germany after World War II who went around and said Hitler was a hero. You're insane if you say that, right? And in fact, we as the US government and occupation prohibited that. And to this day, the German government prohibits a Nazi party. They are right parties, but you cannot form a Nazi party in Germany. I'm not saying, I'm not for censorship. I'm not saying we should do that in the US, but it was acceptable. It was legitimate uh, and still is in some circles to revere the kinds of violence, the assassination activities, the anti-democratic behavior of a John Wilkes Booth. And, and we need to change that. Yeah, and to me, the, the frustration on this argument is 
Um, there are people that want to argue that what the South was arguing for was more than just slavery. Okay. And, and so the problem is when you say that it evokes emotions on all sides, but also it doesn't, you're not actually saying anything because how many people were in the South, they had varying opinions and you couldn't judge them. So you're not really saying anything. We said the South was arguing for X. Well, slavery was definitely part of it. Go read the Mississippi constitution, but there definitely were people in the South who probably slavery was a very small issue for them. Sure. Okay. And so when you talk about reconciling and you talk about, so, so you, you go through, you have the civil war and then post civil war, what you see though, is however much slavery was the issue, what spurred from the civil war was a continuation of that mindset, right? It yeah. didn't, it didn't come to an end. And so that's where the people who want to argue about state rights or, you know, government stuff, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm interested in hearing that, but the post civil war actions seem to indicate that whatever you want to argue slavery wasn't as part of it was. It seems to be more than you're making it be, at least for the powers that be. That, that, what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. Again, uh, I have a whole chapter or two on this in the book, right? What we see after the Civil War are concerted efforts by groups, not everyone, not even a majority, but powerful figures in the South, people like Ben Tillman in South Carolina, who organize people to undermine the citizenship and access and participation for African-Americans and others in society for former slaves. What they are saying explicitly in their own words is that former slaves cannot become full citizens. So clearly they saw them in a different role. Now they felt threatened. I try to empathize, right? Not sympathize, but empathize. If you were a community of a hundred white former slave owners, and you had a thousand slaves who are now free citizens, that changes the dynamic entirely of your politics. And we have to understand that part of reconciliation is also recognizing how how quick this transition was, how difficult this transition was. But we shouldn't paper over. We shouldn't uh, eliminate the honest truth, which is that there were thousands of people who did not want to see the former slaves fully integrated into society. And that's what we're still dealing with today in our society okay now we're gonna get even more controversial um because part of the book the title has the word democracy in it and the way that the south was brought back into the union wasn't through democratic means and that's also tied up with some of this as well right so you sympathize sympathize that's a good distinction there but factually speaking it wasn't a democratic process to bring them back in it was actually the opposite of that when they i guess you might argue they might argue they went through a democratic process to leave how do we can how do we weigh that into it? Because people today will call um, the Confederates treason, uh, the traitors, and they commit treason and this, that, and the other. And it's like when we invoke this word democracy in 2023, I don't think we really ever do a good job of defining what that word really means. We just throw it around to to support our case. So, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a very good point, right? And we've always been an imperfect democracy, and there are things we've done. Particularly, I would agree with you. Uh, in the readmissions of states that that seemed undemocratic. For example, this is part of what you're saying. Uh, it was quite clear the Republicans in Congress uh, had requirements that the states had to fulfill, former states, if, or, if they were going to come back as states in the Union. So the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which were passed with no Democratic votes, all Republican votes, not a single Democratic vote, not a single Southern Democrat voted for any of those amendments, If you wanted to be readmitted as a state, the state of Tennessee, for example, you had to go along with the amendments, right? You had no choice in that. You didn't really have a plebiscite 
on the amendments in your state. And so you can say, yes, they were not part of that democratic process in Tennessee, in Mississippi, in Texas, in Georgia for these amendments. Absolutely. Uh, but the other side of the argument would be that once you were in the union, you were a fully participatory part of the union. We did not readmit Confederate states as subordinate states. So once Mississippi rejoined the union, Mississippi got two senators again, right? And now um, their African-American population also counted for their population fully in apportioning congressional seats, right? So they were given full representation. There was a condition. So I guess, I guess the way I would put it is it became a conditional democracy. You've got to do something. But that's true with every state. When Texas was initially admitted into the Union in uh, 1845, right? Texas at that point, when it was initially admitted into the Union, it also had to go along with accepting the U.S. Constitution, right? And so in that sense, it's a conditional democracy. You have to buy into the agreement to get in. But once you're in, you're a full stakeholder. But do you, do you think that there is an argument to be able, okay, and then you got this clarify this for the, the political environment, but let's put the slavery issue aside. If Texas, California, Florida, whomever, uh, one of the 13 colonies wanted to leave today through a democratic process, is that a right that a state should have? And can the U.S. then force them back in? Because you, when, when we discuss that issue, that to me, that's where the democracy question comes into play, because can a democratic vote get you out of this democratic process. Yeah, so so uh, the, the union can vote to dissolve itself, but you as a state cannot secede. That was decided, uh, that was decided by the Civil War, and that was decided by 150 years, 200 years of, Congress, of uh, Supreme Court jurisprudence since then. And Lincoln, in his Cooper Union address, actually makes this clear, right? This is the same language and same logic used by the Supreme Court thereafter, that the union formed the states as much as the states forming the union. There are a few exceptions to that. Texas is one exception to that, right? Hawaii is one exception to that. Vermont is an exception. There are a handful of states that actually were independent before they were states. Again, Texans are very proud of this. That's why we have the Lone Star uh, flag, right? <laughs> um, but that's not true for South Dakota. Mm -hmm. There was never a South Dakota before there was a union. The union created South Dakota. Mm -hmm. There was never a California before there was the union. So for most of the states... They have no existence that pre-exists uh, the union. It is actually what I say to my kids, right? Uh, my, my, my kids, uh, thankfully, my, we have a loving relationship, but my kids could say at times in their lives, they don't want to talk to their dad, they want to disagree with their dad, whatever, but they can't dissolve our family. They will always be my children, right? They exist because of us, right? Because of my wife, and they cannot <laughs> dissolve that, right? right? So states cannot talk to one another, but they have to be part of the union because that's where they come from. The union has made them just as mom and dad have made uh, my kids, Zachary and Natalie. <laughs> okay. You made a interesting claim or used an interesting term earlier. You said the martyrdom of John Wilkes Booth. Now, obviously today, I don't know if anyone, very few people might hold to that, um, that term, but in that period, what, what was the reaction? So in many parts of the South, um, and I spent a lot of time reading old newspapers, which was such a great source. I love reading old newspapers. And now thanks to the Library of Congress, you can get them all online. It's just fantastic, right? Uh, what you see in newspapers in 1865, 66, 67, in Texas, in Georgia, in Mississippi, and elsewhere, are two things. First, biographies of John Wilkes Booth that make him out to be a hero. 
that he's this heroic figure. He was a believer, a man of integrity. He wouldn't bend his knee to Yankee power and conspiracies about Lincoln. That Lincoln, one, one argument that's made in thousands of these newspapers is that Lincoln was preparing to kill, mass killing of Southerners or the destruction of Southern families, all sorts of things, and Booth stood in the way. Another conspiracy is that Lincoln wasn't even dead. That this was all made up. As Him and Elvis are still hanging out, huh? <laughs> right, exactly. Just like people still think Kennedy's coming back, yeah, right? Right. That sort of thing. So a lot of what we see today, right? Conspiracy theories, exaggerations. Um, and what happened, and this was a real revelation to me, Ryan, doing this research, the old newspapers of 1870s, 1880s, they're like Facebook pages today. Because most newspapers had an editor and two or three reporters, and then they just reprinted stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the same rumor, the same lie gets reprinted again right. and again and again. Yeah, that's a, that's a big point of contention on this show is I get a little frustrated when people talk about the, the golden era of media and news. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's just, I mean, historians seem to agree that after Watergate, they covered the White House differently. So that means yeah. prior to Watergate, they weren't really covering it like they should have been. So you right. can't say that there was real news some high. And I remember reading or uh, listening to uh, Grant's memoirs. Yeah. And I never have verified these accounts, but he would make these statements and he, he wasn't making a point. He would just flippantly say, yeah, we invaded so-and-so town. And I, I read their paper and I was really surprised by how they how they characterized what was going on in the war. Yeah. Now, I didn't verify it, so Grant could have been lying, but he oh. made it this occasionally. And so it, it so it just seems like even there you can go, there's there's propaganda. Um and, and you can see that today with with war and conflict, that propaganda is just part of the system. And so it's no surprising. That's right. What what we're seeing between Ukraine and Russia today, the propaganda on both sides is totally historically normal. The only difference is it's a different technology, right? Right. Right. Now on Booth, I do have to ask this question. I am sitting in Hood County, Texas, the where Granbury is. There is speculation that Booth came through here. I don't know if you know that or if you looked at that or not. I'm curious. Um, if you go to the local bookstore, there's people like, oh, John Wilkes Booth, but I've never been able to verify. Do you any insight on that? So I've, I've seen the same, many of the same things. I have not been able to verify that. We have a diary from Booth, but it's incomplete. We have correspondence, but it's incomplete. Some of it was not, didn't, didn't survive. Some of it was actively destroyed by his family. So we don't know. Uh, I have reason to believe that it's possible but I don't know for certain, but here's the thing, the fact that people care, right? The fact that people care tells you something about the strange way this man is viewed. Well, yeah, and we'll go on a slight, slight sidetrack here because um, occasionally on the show, we'll have a you know, conspiracy theorist. And I, I think we should not diminish that word for a lot of reasons, but 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 because I, I think, listen, there's a lot of crazy stuff that happens. So I'm happy to believe a lot sure. of crazy stuff can happen. So on the, on the missile, if right. there's evidence, right? If there's right. evidence, sure, sure. But I don't want to dismiss something on the, like, so I am a lone gun theory. Uh, uh, Oswald seems to have done it. And that's because that seems to be the best evidence. But you don't have to pull my leg to convince me the CIA could have done it in the sense of it's possible. I just don't see any evidence for it. And so that that's that's the tension. With But, but with those things, what seems to happen um, and whether he came here or not, there is a sense in which people want to be tied to history, right? And so you can go an hour and a half from where I'm at and see where Kennedy was killed. Um, but also, you mentioned this a minute ago, um, you know, kind of the, the the Facebook pages. But there's, we have a real 
lack of interest in epistemology. We, we really aren't concerned with knowing what we can really know because it's not as it's not as sexy as we always want it to be. And so I think that's part of the stuff with totally. whomever. And, and I think we crave simple answers. And I think that the challenge is, and this is on all sides politically, right? To recognize this is what draws me to being a historian. Human beings are remarkably complex. And the complexity actually helps us to understand what's really happening in the world. Look, our country is not divided between Democrats and Republicans today. Most people don't agree with either party. But if you just listen and simplify our society, you put people in red and blue camps, just as you could put people in 1867 in Confederate and Union camps. That's not the reality of how people lived. And understanding, penetrating that complexity is what we need to do if we're serious thinkers. That's what I tried to do for the period after the Civil War. That's what we all need to do today. So post-Civil War, it's easy to go into research laws and stories, and you can see some very terrible things that happen. Um, obviously, we eventually get to the Civil Rights Movement and things on some level start to change. Well, one question that that I've wondered with you as a historian, how do you go and evaluate um, something like the slave narratives, which are there, they're available, um, and they are stunning to read on the positive things said, the negative things said. Uh, so how do you evaluate something like that, which is an interesting point of history, but it's it's a little bit later on. And it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, Great question. So there really aren't smoking guns in the archives. People who haven't done historical research think we show up in an archive and we find that one document, like someone's going to go and find the document that will explain whether Oswald killed Kennedy or not. There's never a smoking gun for something that's complex, like how did the Civil War end? What were the different perspectives? And when you read new material, you're always contextualizing it with what you've read elsewhere. So I know a slave narrative is believable. I know it's um, legitimate. If it fits in with the kinds of language, the kinds of issues that I've read in hundreds of others, if you gave me something that someone said was a slave narrative and the language was different, the arguments were different, the story, I'd be very skeptical that it was real, right? Because most people reflect their times. Now, there's always are smidgens of difference, which is what makes for differences of opinion. But you and I could pick up uh, a political uh, pamphlet uh, from today and we would know whether it was legitimately written by someone in politics today or written by someone in another time just by the kind of language that they use, the references that they make. So knowledge is cumulative and knowledge is contextual. And we judge every new piece of evidence within the context of what we already know. Okay. So with all that being said, why can't we get along today? <laughs> well, part of my answer in the book is that there's unresolved business from the Civil War. The analogy I use is this, right? We're a big family, our nation, right? We're a growing big family. And, um, we have some skeletons in the closet that we either haven't been talking about or we've been whispering to our side of the family about, and that has divided us for too long. And we need to come out and we need to see it. I'll give you the most uh, obvious example where I think we can come together today. Everyone I'm sure you have on your show would agree with this proposition that all citizens should be able to vote, right? All citizens should be able to vote. But our institutions, as they were designed intentionally, as I show in the book after the Civil War, made it harder for certain people to vote than for others. We can come together instead of saying, I want my people to vote and not your people to vote, or I think you're fraudulent because I don't like, let's create a system where everyone can vote, make it easier for everyone to vote, make it more verifiable, 
that everyone has voted? We could do that. But instead, we're arguing over whether I agree that you say who voted, voted or not. Uh, let's make it simple. Let's create a national system with a national ID. I'm for it. That everyone would have to go vote. Yeah, the, the voter ID thing is interesting. We, we did an episode on voter suppression a while back. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a weird thing because um, on some level, we all agree, I think, most of us agree, that you need a driver's license to drive. Now, I'm, 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 a, I'm a libertarian, so I, I'm happy to have these debates on whether or not you need that or not. But, but generally speaking, most people in the country are going to say, hey, we want you to have a driver's license. I'm, I'm for that. I'm for a driver's license, yes. Right. And so, and so and, and we understand that the impact of someone driving, the responsibility, and all of that. And then when you turn on the news, uh, you'll turn it on about 12 months from now, right? Uh, and they'll start saying, this is the most important election of our lifetime. Yeah, if we go get this right, democracy of will course. end. Of course. But then you say, well, to put an ID to require voting is now a problematic. And it's like, and I think that's the frustration is that on one hand, we're saying that this is the world hangs in the balance, but we don't want to verify who votes. And they say, well, we're not not saying that. We're saying that we want this. It's like, well, and and there's no consistency. And both sides can play this game, to be fair. I, I, I agree with you. Now, let's, this is where history matters, right? This is, This is a problem in the creation of our system. Our founders were so far ahead of our time. They were geniuses. They they did so many good things, but they were imperfect. They made mistakes, right? So the founders of our republic did not believe that everyone would, should, or could vote. And so they set up a system where states had a lot of control. So every state has its own rules and then counties within states, and these get very convoluted, right? And they're manipulated. I grew up in New York. It's manipulated by Democrats in New York. I'm now in Texas. It's manipulated by Republicans in Texas, and they're explicit about it in both states, okay? But we can fix this, right? Voting should be something like Social Security. It should be a national right. We all would say that, right? I say there should be a constitutional amendment, not just saying you can't deny the right to vote because someone's based on their race or their sex, just saying in First Amendment language, no one shall do anything to stop a citizen from voting. And then create, I'm with you, as we have for Social Security, We could even use your social security card, right? Create a national ID. Here's the problem in a place like Texas. The rules are written in Texas to make it harder for young people to prove who they are than for older people, right? In Texas, my students have to prove that they've lived in the same place for six months. They have to show an address. That's easy. I own a house for me. Most of my students, they're moving. I have students who just came back from studying abroad. They're living in someone else's apartment, Venmoing them the rent. They don't have proof that they live on 26th Street in Austin. Makes it very hard for them to vote. It was hard for my daughter to get an absentee ballot. We can fix this with national standards. And you know what? I think we could all agree. And then we'd have politics. It's not just that one side would vote more. Both sides would vote more. And then we would be able to agree this person's been elected really by the American people. So you said, um, let's clarify here, that everyone should be able to vote. So generally speaking, every citizen. Every every citizen. citizen. Yeah, yeah. So two questions. One, would you extend that to felons? Yes. Former, right. those who have served their time. Served their time. Okay. And then, two, and then two, how do we unpack an issue um, where 
groups are voting this isn't this isn't a um white black male female but it's people demographic like where you locally live geographic issue where you're voting on an issue that doesn't really pertain to you um, but you have access to vote and so you can see something like maybe mineral rights um ability to produ- produce oil and gas or wind farms or, or whatever um real estate development how do you think about that because that's that's where it gets contentious it seems is that if you want to have that conversation say well these these people I'm not sure they should have they should have a right to vote generally speaking, but on this issue, how do you phrase that? So we have jurisdictional issues and representative representative issues, right? So first is jurisdiction. We need to be clear. Uh, I, I'm a firm believer in federalism, lowercase f, uh, that uh, the town I live in, people who live in the town should be voting on the future of the town, not the people who live outside of the town, and vice versa, right? That's how our system works. There also are representative issues. I do think. Um, there are a lot of issues where we can't expect the citizens to follow. They're complex issues. And so that's why we elect leaders and then we hold them accountable. And I like the idea of people serving short term so we can hold them accountable, right? So I don't know the details of zoning law in Austin. I'm not, I shouldn't be you know, voting on that. I should vote on someone. And if I like the way the city is developing, I keep voting for them. If I don't, then I put someone else in to run the zoning laws. Yes. I, the, the, I think the, the problem earlier that you touched on is um, once you vote, if you're voting Republican or Democrat, it doesn't matter. Um, so in Austin, it's more of a Democrat town. Where I'm at, it's very Republican. So just swap it around. Once you vote for the majority candidate in your part in, in, in your town, so Republican here, Democrat down there, um, you're less likely to primary them on a on a, on a next election. And I think that's part of the, the, the thing here is that you're so afraid the Democrat or the Republican might win that you're really not incentivized to primary them, to get someone who's, you know, aligns with your values or vote third party that you kind of perpetuate this system of people who might have short terms, but they stay in forever because you're so afraid to primary them that they, they, the, the, the next person might lose. Well, and this is a problem uh, also of money in politics, right? Money gives is always an advantage to the incumbent in raising money because the incumbent can promise to do things for you in return for your money because they're already in office. And so this is, this is a challenging thing. I think we have to lower the barriers to entry. I'd like to see more candidates running, more good people running with lower barriers to entry. I think more voters and more candidates produces better results. We have too few candidates and too few voters. And I would say more third party voting. <laughs> yeah, I'm for that. I'm because, for third parties. Yeah. yeah. Because that actually, you know, if you're, um, maybe very you know, more of a socialist than the green party probably represents you better vote for them because that actually gives you a good representation of what's going on. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. And that can pull a lot of the best ideas historically going back to the civil war, the creation of the Republican party, which was an insurgency, a third party against the Whig party. Many of the best ideas have come from people within a party who form a new party and then pull that whole party with them. Okay, we're going to start a new party after this podcast. Is there over. we go. I love it. I love it. Ryan's party. <laughs> What's that? Ryan's party. Ryan's party. No, 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 no. We'll call it the. We'll call it something else. Um. So I think we could spend the remaining time going through all the mistakes the South made, but those are pretty well documented, right? Yeah. I mean, they're they're pretty well documented. Plenty of shows can beat up on that. What are the mistakes from the northern side that you saw that that have been made? Great question. So the biggest one, and I'm often asked, what would have been different if Lincoln had lived and Andrew Johnson had not become president? The biggest mistake, I spend a whole chapter on this, it's one of the, I think one of the more interesting chapters in the book, is that there are a large number of former Confederate leaders 
who literally refused to surrender. I'm not talking Robert E. Lee here. I'm talking people like Joe Shelby, John Bankhead Magruder, Alexander Watkins Terrell. I profile all of them in the book and Civil War buffs will know who they are. They actually leave the country. They join the army of Maximilian in Mexico fighting against the US. When Maximilian is defeated, uh, they come back to the US, they declare themselves heroes and they run for office, get elected. And they use their positions, especially Alexander Watkins Terrell in Texas, to actually reinstill the Confederacy, to recreate the Confederacy. They never should have been able to do that. Uh, they were able to do that despite the 14th Amendment that prohibits those who violate their oath of office. They were able to do that because they were pardoned by Andrew Johnson. Here's what I think was the big mistake. The leaders of the South, not the ordinary soldiers, the leaders, the ones who made this war, they should have been held accountable, which is to say, under the 14th Amendment, they never should have been able to serve in office again. I'm not for putting them in prison, but I'm for saying, you know what? You led this war, you lost, you don't get to serve in government again. I firmly believe that those who have violated an oath of office and been proven to do that should not be able to serve again. Office is a public trust. Okay. And so Johnson is trying to heal the wounds and he goes too far then essentially. Not just, he's not just trying to heal the wounds. He's very explicit. His own words, which I quote in the book, he's trying to keep uh, the white leaders in charge in the South. And he's afraid that if these figures don't come back, you're going to see not just a group of African-American leaders, but white Republicans <laughs> rather than white Democrats. Remember, Johnson is a Southern Democrat. He's the only Southern Democratic individual in the Senate who didn't secede. That's why Lincoln makes him vice president. But Lincoln never intended for him to be president. And so what he's trying to do is keep his people, his party in power. Uh, and that's a real mistake. We would have been better off having Republicans in charge in the South because that would have, for instance, meant better investment in the South. It would have meant better work on civil rights. It would have benefited whites and blacks, I believe. But instead, we got stuck with the old guard coming back in. No one likes the old guard. No, especially <laughs> when they've lost a war. They're done. <laughs> but I, I want to just be clear, though, Ryan, I'm not saying they should have been uh, physically harmed. Office is not a right. To serve in public office is not a right. If you violated the public trust, you should not serve in public office. Felons should vote. We talked about this before, but mm. felons should not be able to serve in public office. I am in agreement with that. So they, should, they shouldn't have gotten the Jefferson Davis treatment, you're saying? Correct. Correct. Okay. Um, why has it been so hard to rebuild the trust, not only North and South, but just among the citizens? Well, uh, for a variety of reasons. First of all, we haven't really told the history. Mm. What we do instead is we tell myths and we tell feel-good stories on both sides. I, I make this point at the end of the book. You know how you build trust? It's the same way you do it in a family, right? You air your dirty laundry, you talk about it, you acknowledge it, you apologize, and you move forward. I am for apologies. I'm for acknowledging the history. Uh, no one alive today is responsible for anything the Confederacy did. But all of us have to recognize that it left scars in our society, and we have to acknowledge those scars. And I don't just mean black and white. There were a lot of poor white people who were severely harmed by the Civil War and what happened afterwards. We need to acknowledge that. And I'm not, I'm not for reparations in the sense of someone being given a check because of past wrongs, but I am for a public discussion and then public investment. I notice that many of the same parts of the poor white South that had poor education levels 
1870 have poor education levels today. We need to recognize that history and put more resources, for instance, into providing people better educational opportunities in places that have not had them. Well, and, and on the reparations topic, I am definitely in favor of reparations to the um, victims. But to your point that so even modern jailing, we could do a whole podcast on my thoughts on modern jailing. But but yeah, I think that reparations are, are even more effective um, than prison. So um, if you can enforce it and all that stuff. So yeah, so in, in, another thing is it's not politically correct to say that there were good people in the South, which there were. Of course there were, of course. Right. Were. And yeah. so it, but Yeah, no, I was going to say there were thousands, hundreds of thousands of courageous individuals, some of whom joined the Confederate Army, then after the war really wanted reconciliation, really tried to help. Others who didn't join the Confederate Army. Uh, there are all kinds of, again, this is the complexity of human experience. Actually, I think most of the bad behavior is is instigated and encouraged by a very small number of people. Right. Bad things happen when a small number of people with power do things and others are forced to follow along. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. To to argue why John Smith on 123 Main Street, Louisiana or 123 Main Street, New York, fought in the Civil War is impossible for you and me to know. They could have been great people, terrible people anywhere in between. Um, I mention the show quite often. Band of Brothers is my favorite show. And if you watch the interviews with the, the they're all dead now, but the ones that were living, they talk about at the end of the war how they began to understand the Germans and how they, they didn't really hold a grudge. And it's, it's sad in our society that we haven't had, I mean, maybe those conversations were had um, well before I was born, but we don't talk about it like that. And we would all agree that Nazi Germany, I mean, it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. And this is you and I as history buffs get this. This is why studying history is so important because when you study history, you realize what you just said, And then the second point that follows from that, which is that most people do what they're doing because of the circumstances they're in, the power of circumstances, right? I always tell my students, don't overrate your will above the circumstances you live in. We could change the circumstances a little bit and you'd be in a totally different place doing totally different things. We as historians recognize that. It allows us, therefore, to acknowledge bad behavior without saying people are horrible people. And it allows us then to think about how we could change the circumstances. If you want to change the world, don't try to change people. Change the circumstances people are in. Who was the – so we, we talk about Johnson, so we'll, we won't pick on him anymore. Give me the best political leader, so president, senator, governor, post-Civil War, who you think has done the most to improve relations. Well, I think Grant tried. Okay. Uh, I'm part of a group of historians who have been trying to change the image of Grant. He had been seen for a while as a drunkard and an ineffective president. Uh, no, there were limitations. And I talk about this in the book. Grant was not a great politician. Grant was a terrible businessman. Uh, but Grant had a change of view. He went into the Civil War believing all the racist stuff and anti-Semitic stuff, very anti-Semitic stuff that most people in Southern Illinois and Southern Ohio believed. He came out of the war seeing 125,000 former slaves serve as Union soldiers and as damn good soldiers. And he talks about this. He came out seeing them, wow, they, they, they don't fit the stereotypes. He was a free thinker. And then as president, he tried to use the office to crack down on those bad behaviors and the violent actors who were trying to undermine reconciliation. So he pushed for, for example, the Ku Klux Klan Act, the anti-Ku Klux Klan Act of 1870, which is still the legislation used to prosecute insurrectionists 
from January 6th, 2021, right? So he tried to create a rule of law. He created the Justice Department. There was no Justice Department before Grant's presidency. One of the other great people of the time that I talk about is Amos Ackerman, who was Attorney General at the time. Amos Ackerman had been a Confederate from Georgia. After the war, he said, I've got to be part of reconciliation in the Union. I want to be about helping defend former slaves who are being mistreated. And as Attorney General, that's what he did to do. He wasn't favoring blacks over whites. He was trying to create the rule of law. He believed if you had equal application of the law in Georgia, in Texas, everyone would live better. These are heroes. They were not entirely effective. But that period between 1868, when Grant is elected, and 1872, the end of his first term, we make a lot of progress then. We make a lot of progress, which shows how much more was possible, it seems to me. What would you say about someone like Robert E. Lee? So I have a more critical view of Lee than many others. Now, I share the view that Lee is the great military mind of his time. Uh, Grant also has enormous, because if you look at the Vicksburg campaign, you see that Grant is an incredible military thinker as well. But Lee, Lee is the best of the group. Certainly McClellan was supposed to be his equal. No way. Right. So I have respect for Lee. I also have respect for the dignity with which Lee carries himself. Uh, that all needs to be said, but Lee does not invest in reconciliation, and that is a real missed opportunity. The Germans, you referred to this before, after World War II, the remaining German leaders uh, invested in reconciliation after the war. They not only acknowledged they had lost the war, they acknowledged that the United States was right, that Nazism was horrible. Lee never did that. Lee never, never renounced the Confederacy, and it would have made an enormous difference. I quote this in the book. Grant says this. It's Grant's regret as well. It's in his memoirs, right? You referred to those, uh, his beautiful memoirs, where he says at the time of the meeting at Appomattox Courthouse, uh, where they're signing the, the, the surrender, in a sense, of the Confederacy, of Lee's troops, uh, Grant says to Lee, you know, you're going to help us now, right? We're going to come together. And Lee says to Grant, you probably remember this, you're going to have to run your army three times over the South before this war really ends. He knows the Union's not going to do that. Uh, I wish, I wish Lee had been more than just a dignified figure, but it helped just what you were saying before, to sell reconciliation, to advocate for reconciliation after the war. Yeah, I find Lee to be, um, depends on, I guess, the launching point you get into Lee, because I've gone through a few biographies of him, and um, I, I never walk away going, oh, man, now I'm not a military strategist, so from that standpoint, I have no real comment, um, but this some of the things he did and said, but there is a story that, that I've often pondered how to put it in. I don't know if it's true or if it's apocryphal is that at the end, I think it's at the end of the war, he takes communion at the front of the church with a black parishioner. And that was a, something that no one would have done. And he did it. So I wondered if that maybe was a sense in which he was trying to make past amends. Yeah, to some extent, I think that's right. But I think part really making past amends is not simply reconciling yourself to others but also acknowledging that your cause was flawed. Not that the people were bad people. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying what what the Germans did at the end of the war, what the Japanese did, is they acknowledged that their cause had been the wrong cause. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what he needed to say. Mm -hmm. That's what Grant wants him to say. He could even say these are good people who tried their best, who believed they were doing the right thing, but they were misguided. They were following a false prophet. But that's not said. And so the false prophet remains legitimate. Right. It's honestly what I want people who might have followed Trump and have now seen what Trump really was. 
That's what I want them to say. I don't want to condemn anyone who is a Trump supporter. Not at all. But I think Trump was a, I'm, I'm getting into dangerous waters here, but I think he did terrible things for our democracy. And I think people who have recognized that, they should, they should acknowledge that. Don't just say you no longer support him. Say what he represents is a danger, is an affront to our democracy. You can still then like DeSantis or someone else who's not Trump, but what he represents should be renounced. You, you, listen, we have on right, left, center, middle. You can say whatever you want to. So, um, yeah, we, we talked about this um, with the January 6th stuff. Uh, we had a, a guy on talking against Christian nationalism, and he said that he doesn't hear people renounce Christian nationalism. And the pushback that I gave there, and I'll get the same one here, is what I don't see, right or left, you could see, we, can, we can use Trump if we want to, it's fun, is the ability for someone to renounce and stay. And so in, his, in this case, he's talking about Christian nationalism. Um, I don't see the ability for someone to renounce being a Christian nationalist saying, hey, that's not, I'll give you a different example. I'm a libertarian. I said that before. If there were libertarians on January 6th, to me, that doesn't compute with the non-aggression principle. Like it doesn't make sense. So whatever they're claiming, I have no idea. I'm not interested in in renouncing libertarianism because as I understand it, the rules that we go by are still non-aggression. So I don't get it. But, but so how do you thread that needle? Cause it seems to be that no people want you to renounce your libertarianism. Does that make sense? Uh, Right. Absolutely. I don't want anyone to renounce their core beliefs in that sense. Right. So I'm not, I didn't say, and I would never say someone has to renounce being a Republican. Look, the Republican party is the party of Abraham Lincoln. I revere Lincoln. (laughs) So no, and, and I revere Theodore Roosevelt. There are a lot of things I like about Ronald Reagan, right? There's some Dwight Eisenhower, right? The Republican Party has a distinguished, glorious past that people should be proud of. I am not, and, and I can make the same argument for the Democratic Party too, right? Franklin Roosevelt, et cetera, right? So we're not arguing here that someone has to renounce their beliefs, their libertarianism, but you should renounce the false prophets, those who have exploited, distorted, and weaponized the things you believe to contradict the purposes, right? So People who become Republicans, I believe, I still believe this is true, they become Republicans because they love their country and they love democracy. But if there's a Republican leader who uses the Republican Party to harm our country and to harm democracy, you have to renounce that movement within your party. I'll do this right now. I'm a Jew. I revere being, I revere uh, what my ancestors have lived through. I revere the resilience of Jews, the love of learning, the assimilation abilities to move into different societies. But there are many parts of many actors who act in the name of Jews today who I find morally reprehensible because they use their Jewishness to justify taking other people's land or they use their Jewishness to justify violence. I renounce Jewish terrorism. I renounce that. And I would say that Republicans should renounce the terroristic use of their party by someone like a Donald Trump. Yeah. Lucky for me, I didn't vote for Biden, Trump, or Clinton. So I'm I'm clean on all fronts here. (laughs) I I renounce them all. I renounce them all. I'm with you. Let's renounce Biden, Trump, Clinton, Obama. I didn't vote for him either. So I can renounce them all, all the bad things they do. I do see your point. I I think, I think it's why I talk about love the show. I when you get people on the podcast and they talk, they can make points like that. Like, oh, all you're saying is, yeah, hey, January 6th, guys, you lost your freaking mind, okay? <laughs> you can't lose your freaking mind like that. I don't and, – and, and again, January 6th is a composite of people who are on one end extremely deranged and on other end people who are just like, oh, what in the – 
oh, and not and not processing not processing exactly what's happening in the moment. And there's a spectrum there. Um, and the the crazies are the crazies. And so, um, but you know, if you turn on CNN or Fox, the ability to make that nuance is just people. It, it feels that's what's telling him. It doesn't feel like that's the conversation that happens at the national level. And that's the frustrating thing because people do want to nuance things and clarify them. Just, just right, like but I want, I want to stand by principle. I think you do too, right? And my principle is, and I think what can it be principled and nuanced, right? Look, in our society, we should not be using violence to try to change the outcome of elections. If you try to use violence, regardless of what side you're on, and on January 6th, they were on one side, right, to right, use yeah. violence to change the outcome of an election, you know what? That's against the law. And I renounce that, right? But you can protest peacefully, absolutely. Yeah. You can protest peacefully. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, we're, I think we're on the same page there. Yeah, it's it, it's it's a um, it's an it's the inability for us to understand uh, or to articulate that we have a moral belief. In this case, you're saying that you know this is the moral belief, and this is in conflict with that because it's in conflict with that. It, it, it but it reflects our political leanings. We're afraid to. Um, separate it. And in the other side, though, I don't think wants, in this case, wants to allow you to separate it properly. I think you've done a good job of saying, hey, you can continue being Republican. I don't think that's the conversation nationally. And that's, agree that's, with you. The, that's the problem. Yeah, I agree with you. Okay. Um, all right. We got just another minute here. Give me an unanswered question. Maybe that when you're writing this book, you're thinking through that you would like to have answered. Oh, I have so many. I mean, the okay. thing is two or three, then go ahead. When you do research, you realize how much you don't know. As you learn more, you realize how complex things are, right? This is why you have so many books behind you. The more you read, the more you need to read because the problems become more complex, right? So I'll give you a few that I that I really, really would love to have answered, right? What were the things that would have um, helped Southern Democrats to be reconciled better? What were the things that could have been done that weren't done? We know what was done that didn't work. We've talked about that. You've asked great questions about that. But what were the things that should have been done? That's the real question, right? What could have been done to make this easier, to help Southern Democrats and particularly former slave owners to feel more comfortable in this world? Second, uh, what could have been done also to help those who were mistreated, white and black? Not enough was done. We take for granted a lot of the things we do to help people who are down and out today. Unemployment insurance, all kinds of all kinds of philanthropies in our communities. Many of them had nothing. What could have been done after a war when people didn't have a lot of extra money and they had already been, even the winners had been suffering, right? What could have been done? And then the, the one that I think is really, really interesting to me is how could we have found better leaders? We had a great leader in Abraham Lincoln. And then we had another generation of great leaders of the early 20th century, Theodore Roosevelt and others. But we have a bunch of dud presidents in between. They're good people, but not very good leaders. What could have been done? Because we needed better leaders to educate and promote better leaders in that period. Uh, Those three questions, you know, those are each like a whole shelf of books unto themselves. Okay. We are going to link to the book in the show notes. Obviously, we got your link to um, the LBJ Law School page as well. Is there anywhere else you want us to send people to? Sure. Well, I have my own weekly podcast called This Is Democracy. Okay. You could link to that. Uh, it's Absolutely. on Spotify, I, I, you know, everything. Uh, and what we do on that show is we bring on historians, policymakers, and others to talk about current issues and historical perspective. We're not trying to address current politics. But for instance, the most recent episode, 
we looked at Jimmy Carter's career. We brought on a biographer of Jimmy Carter. We didn't talk about current politics, but we wanted people to be able to understand as Jimmy Carter approaches the end of his life, what his presidency was about. Nice. We, before we had a former leader of the CIA talking about how the CIA has evolved over time. So just bringing historical knowledge to contemporary debates uh, and avoiding taking sides. Okay, we've got that linked up in the show notes as well. Jeremy, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed this. I did too. You asked great questions and this was a really fun and I think also nonpartisan discussion, which I really value. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? Helps keep the show going and ad free. Thank you so much.